Welcome to the Creek Default Podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome back to the Creek Default Podcast. I'm your host, George Lepinotis. I'm joined today by a very interesting duo, one of our longest serving partners and most experienced business attorneys, Bob Kreising, and also one of our newest partners and also a very experienced business attorney, Amy Von Dilligan. Amy, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. I know that uh, you've been with the firm now for three weeks. Not quite. All right. Well, we threw you into the fire. We brought you into this amazing Krieg DeVault podcast studio. And you are joined today by, by, by myself, of course, but also by Bob Grising. So how much better can it get than that? I can't imagine. <laughs> Nor can I. <laughs> well, let's talk about our topic. Um, I think it's a good one for our listeners. Um, even as the economy turns, I still believe that the mergers and acquisition space is active. It may not be quite as active as some of the record-setting uh, years we've had, but let's talk a little bit about just the basics. How is your practice? What is your practice? What do you focus on, Amy? Uh, and, and, and what do you spend your time doing? So I work mostly with closely held companies, so not public companies, helping them through their entire kind of business life cycle from formation, buy-sell agreements, and then all the way through when they're ready to sell or if they're acquiring. So Yeah, if they're, in fact, acquiring their own uh, targets. And Bob, very similar for you as well. Yeah, very similar. Um, I do a little bit of soups to nuts, uh, given the experiences that I've had and how long I've been doing this. I probably have seen a little bit of most everything, and, and I like to think of it that way, that I'm able to help companies with whatever business issues might surface, and then uh, particularly with the focus on um, strategic relationships or strategic transactions, buying and selling companies, uh, you know, strategic licensing arrangements, uh, outsourcings, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, our business acquisitions and securities practice group, which I am a member of as well, uh, is a very strong group, and it's a kind of core part of our, our practice here at Creek Devault. Um, we pride ourselves on, on, on being a business-focused law firm. Um, so we bring to bear that, that market, right? We understand deals, we see them often, and we can advise our clients on what is standard, what is not, what we routinely see, and what we don't. And today, I think we're talking about a topic that is probably one of, if not the most important parts or considerations in a transaction, and that is uh, seller financing and earnouts. And these are areas where, uh, as we said before we went on the air, the economics of the deal really do intersect with the legalities of the transaction. So first off, let's define that, Bob. What, what is an earnout? What is a post-closing obligation? Yeah, um, I'd like to go back to one of your first comments uh, with the change in the um, transactional fervor uh, that we had seen over the last couple of years. That certainly is cooling off a little bit. Uh, you know, the change in interest rates has changed things. But that, in many ways, is a precursor to the need for understanding seller financing alternatives um, because it is a way to uh, to span the gap, if you would, in a couple of different areas, one of which is uh, liquidity gap, uh, where perhaps the buyer can no longer get the type of financing that it w thought it could and, and might have been able to get a, a year or so ago. Um, and then also a value gap. As pricing changes, the buyers are going to look for buying the same thing but for less money. Um, and the sellers don't agree with that. And so they believe that there's a value proposition that is still valid for the platform 
that they've created and that they are transferring to the buyer. And so the seller financing is a tool that is available to address both of those. If there's a need for more money, then that is typically pushed into a seller financing. And the seller financing is basically the seller becoming the lender to the buyer. That there's money that the seller will still get at closing, but the difference is something that the seller will carry as paper, sometimes formally documented with a promissory note and all that. Uh, the earnout is really addressing the value differential. That I think it's worth more, you think it's worth less. So we'll establish an earnout process to see who's right. And if the company performs as I think it will, then I, as a seller, should get the value that I thought I was transferring. Um, and if it turns out that my sales don't recover or something else doesn't happen for the earnout, then the buyer was right, and the buyer doesn't overpay uh, for the platform that they're acquiring. So that's sort of the overview and the way in which those things work out. We'll talk a little bit more in details about how each of those might get structured and some of the considerations that a seller should bear in mind when thinking about these alternatives. Yeah, yeah. well, and that's interesting to, to note because I agree with you. I think that rise in interest rates is the primary reason that deals are cooling. I think there's still commodity out there. I believe there's still uh, businesses to be acquired, businesses growing, entrepreneurship has not seemed to slow. Um, quite the opposite, I think, especially here in the Midwest, Indiana, where we're located, um, there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurial activity. And like you said, you take a company from from uh, from the start to the finish or in all parts in between. Um, it sounds like a simple concept, but really the legalities of it are, are difficult, Amy. Tell us a little bit more about how you go about protecting both. We represent both sellers and buyers. But what, what are the concerns? Let's start first with seller financing. What is a buyer concerned with when the seller is now their bank? So a lot of the concerns are going to be similar to what you would see with a third-party lender, where they worry about, do I have enough cash flow to service this loan? What are the terms? You know, what is the, How long do I have to pay this back? Uh, what's the interest rate going to be? Um, for an earnout, the concerns for a buyer are defining very clearly what the standard is that's going to be they're going to be held to post closing to decide whether any additional funds are going to be paid or not. So it, it is a drafting challenge for sure on both sides, both the seller financing piece and the earnout piece, to make sure we have clearly defined what the obligations are, when payment is actually going to be triggered, and what that looks like. Yeah. And that would. Uh, also offer that this is an opportunity for the seller and the purchaser to be really clear about what their expectations are, uh, clarity upon terms, clarity upon milestones, um, and it's a way for them to really be collaborative. It's not intended necessarily to be totally adversarial. It will get that way. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to yeah. deny that. Yeah. But when you're setting this out at the beginning, it's like, okay, let's make sure we know what the ground rules are so that we don't have to have a fight down the road. Well, and collaboration seems to be the key because you are facing challenges. I mean, for instance, a recent earnout that I did that was tied to 2022's um, uh, gross revenue. Um, supply chain issues severely hampered gross revenue for the business. That was not necessarily seller's fault or the business's an underlying flaw in the business. The business very well might have made the earnout, but for its supply chain issues. 
they were difficult to draft. And so ultimately the earnout wasn't paid because that is in fact another force that can impact a business. Um, what are the, what have you seen in your experience? Are there things that you need to be concerned about as a seller when you agree to an earnout when you're taking that gamble, Bob? Well, certainly um, part of it is what you're talking about. This is a, a big part of this is risk identification and the risk allocation. Who is going to take the risk of uh, of the business going forward? And the examples that we've had over the past certainly a couple of years with the pandemic and then supply chain issues, those are risks of the industry. So should I as a seller be harmed by that or is that a risk really that the purchaser has taken and therefore I should still get what I thought I was going to get? Uh, so that's one of that. But when you're really looking at um, the seller's concern, it is uh, changes in the marketplace. Um, it is the impact that the buyer's own financial structure may have. Um, there's a good chance that as the seller, if you're in a seller financing, uh, you're going to have to take a position that is subordinated to the purchaser's lead financing. Um, and so all of a sudden you're then behind the curveball and you may actually uh, have to negotiate with that party uh, the terms of that subordination. Um, and that maybe that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> these, you know, but, these podcasts tend to do that. <laughs> they tend to uncover other podcasts. It's amazing. But, um, you know, being subordinated behind a senior letter, lender, even if you're a seller that has a collateral interest in the assets, you're you're at least second line, if not further. And so you're concerned about ultimately getting paid and the credit risks that you're taking in a situation where sellers are not used to perhaps understanding or managing that type of credit risk the way that a bank or, a, or an institutional lender would be. Yeah. So that's probably one of the biggest concerns. And then the purchaser can make a lot of changes. Yeah. You know, I'm selling to um, a group or a firm, it's a private equity group, and all of a sudden they get a deal and they sell out and now I'm dealing with somebody else that I don't know and don't trust. And so, you know, there are some ways to address that as well. But it's just the uncertainty of what might mean when you no longer really control those decisions. Yeah, yeah. Amy, did you, do you in your practice see earnouts in a lot of your agreements? Bob and I were talking about this before the podcast. I've seen it a lot more recently, but I had worked with a client who was moving pretty quickly on acquiring a number of new businesses just to expand into new geographical areas. And because they were running somewhat quickly on due diligence, the earnout was a way for them to kind of, you know, mitigate their risk that they were going to be overpaying for some of these businesses. So I have seen it a lot more recently. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important concept for those earnouts is that they, from a buyer's perspective, they are sometimes negoti negotiating tools to allow for that greater flexibility to actually close a transaction. Oh, yeah. We, one of the ones that I worked with most recently was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, there was a lot of uncertainty as to what sales was going to, what the impact was going to be on sales and earnings. And so the uh, seller and the purchaser sort of split the difference and said, okay, we're going to put in this earnout. There was actually close to a 20% reduction off of the uh, target price. And the good news is, is that our client ended up getting all the earnout because the impact on their earnings over the course of that first year of the pandemic was not what was feared, but actually uh, they came out all right and they got 100% of their target dollars. Yeah. Going back to a concept that Bob mentioned earlier, that collaborative process of the transaction. Um, it's funny because I do believe that that is such a core part of 
of the job, of what we do. Even though we are adversarial and everybody has their own counsel and their own team, the reality is that there is a very common thread and it's I almost akin it to parenting, right? You know, you may be handing your child off to another parent, but the child remains. And that's the, the, the core philosophy with the business, a transfer of the business is that business will continue with these new owners. So there'd better be a, a decent collaboration there, especially when there are these post-closing obligations. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I represent a lot of sellers and uh, many of them, and another reason why there's good activity likely to continue, it's the baby boomer effect that a lot of those sellers I'm representing are at retirement. They're not exiting for just because they're tired of doing it. They, you know, they just are retiring. Yeah. And so they've got a lot of legacy value in that business, making sure it continues. And, um, and so they do have a lot of uh, tenderness of heart about the, the company that they're selling. Yeah. Uh, shifting gears here real quick as we as we move along um, there we talked about seller financing and as as you were making the introduction Bob I, I wrote down the note interest to seller Amy as rates rise and a seller thinks about financing the sale of their own business oftentimes sellers are when they're as Bob said they're at a stage in their career where they've worked at it for a lifetime potentially their debt loads are pretty low they have the ability to absorb or, or hold some of those debts. Um, making 6 or 7% interest on your money isn't a bad idea, is it? You wouldn't think so. It, uh, number one, makes it more attractive for buyers to not have to find as much bank financing, to come to a closing table with less cash, always going to be attractive to a buyer. So to the extent that you are kind of on the wave out, you you might, if you are you know not that risk averse, you might be willing to kind of float some of this money for, you know, for the future, and it might be a great return for you. And you said that key phrase, risk averse. The risk is, of course, that the business doesn't do as well under new leadership and ownership and that the buyer isn't able to pay the obligation and that the seller is not able either to collect their money or even worse they end up with the business back that's right <laughs> it's a do they want it do they want a security interest in these assets do they want to have to take them back maybe not yeah, yeah. fair enough but the interest rate is is an interesting one because um the buyers may very well see this as a good alternative. Uh, the sellers, though, should not undersell the value that they're providing, and particularly if they're a you know sort of behind the first in line. Um, a subordinated lender usually gets a little bit of a higher rate of interest. Yeah. Um, but if what you're trying to do is to close the deal, you know whether you get three percent or four percent is probably a small uh, concession if what you're trying to do is get to closing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, there is one other note I see in, in, in your notes here that I think I wanted to talk about, and that's a concept called rollover equity. And I, I, I think that rollover equity is oftentimes misunderstood. Uh, we talk about it as a second bite at the apple, um, but w w Bob, give us just a brief understanding of what it means. Sure. Um, the concept is that the sellers continue to have an ownership interest in the company. Um, with seller financing and earnout, they no longer have an equity ownership in the company. Um, they have an interest, a financial interest, a credit interest with seller financing. They have a value interest with earnouts, uh, but they they don't have a seat at the table. They're not going to be able to elect someone to the board of directors, for example. 
but a rollover equity, and it's a very common um, attribute of a transaction, particularly with uh, strategic buyers or private equity buyers. Um, they want to see that the management team has an ongoing interest um, in this and to help build the company. And so even if you're a retiring person with you know, a 60-day transition after closing, there's a good chance they're going to ask you to put some money in. The second bite of the apple, the concept is I now have equity in a company that's growing. Um, the platform will be expanded by additional acquisitions. But at some point, that company is going to sell, and now I participate in the upside of what's been created. Yeah. Risk, of course, is that there is no upside. That's right. Um, and yeah. so you're taking anywhere from probably at least 10, if not 25 to 30 percent of the deal and letting it ride, uh, put, leaving those chips on the table and taking the chance that it will be worth something. And so the difference with what we were talking about on seller financing um, and earnouts is that you do have uh, shares in the company and you do participate in the upside. And uh, it's a very effective tool that seller uh, that buyers like to require. Um, I've seen a lot of sellers be very interested in that. And I've also seen groups of sellers that are very in different situations where <laughs> You have five yeah. owners of the yeah. business, yeah. and yeah. two of them roll over, and three of them say, not me. Yeah. You know, so. yeah. Well, Amy, in your experience with the rollover equity, I've seen it some in medical spaces where maybe a smaller clinic is, is being acquired by a larger group, and now the doctors or the owners of that smaller space now own a larger portion. Um, are there any pitfalls? I mean, is there is there a concern? I mean, the one that, that I've advised my clients of the most is, you you run your own kingdom and now you're part of a legislature and you better learn the, the, the diplomacy that goes along with that. That's right. You're not calling the shots anymore. You're along for the ride. And a lot of owners find that difficult to transition to that kind of mindset. Um, and as Bob said, you're, there's no guarantee that you'll see any upside to this. You know, it is another business interest and now you're not the one in control of it. So it's just like, you know, a, a, an investment that you you know, would make on the market. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. As a matter of fact, as part of that transaction, we often advise our clients on, you're now switching gears mid-transaction from selling to doing your own due diligence on what you're buying, right? That's right. Take a look at the organizational documents, see what the structure of the company looks like, you know, to know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. Well, guys, this is always such a fascinating topic. I think it's because all three of us are in the same space, and um, uh, you know we are uh, we are M and A nerds. I'm sure other people would tell us, but fascinating stuff for our clients that want to learn more about our business acquisition and securities practice here at Craig Devault. Uh, check out our website at CraigDevault.com. Uh, both of you, thank you for the time today. I know that uh, you're both in high demand, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this uh, kind of interesting topics. Glad to be here. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Welcome. Thanks, George.